Hello, and welcome to the Remedy House podcast, where I talk about new knowledge, resources, and books for anyone curious about mental health. My name is Renee Watson, and I'm so grateful to be chatting with you. If you're new here, welcome. If you're not new, thank you so much for your support. Any links or resources mentioned in this podcast will be linked under the podcast tab on my website at remedy.house. Hello and welcome back to the Remedy House podcast. I'm super excited about our topic today. Um, I hope everybody is having a wonderful day. I'm recording this in the evening and we had an awesome full day which ended in um, making bread. So hopefully that turns out. But it's one of the lovely things about homemaking that I love. So I hope y'all are doing some cozy, comforting things today too. Um, I still have my everlasting cough. It seems to be a part of life now. So if you hear that, forgive that. Hopefully it is gone soon. And um, yeah, so this is technically the first real podcast of the year, and I saved the best for last. Um, last year, all of my podcasts were about my pillars of practice. Um, they're the things that I use to guide me through life and clinical work and professional work. So I thought it was really important to lay the foundation of what Remedy House is standing on. Uh, Before we get into the many millions of topics we can talk about um, in mental health. So I saved the best for last. And today's topic is community. Um, I feel like when I talk about community, I feel like it's just kind of a joke. Because if you're in the field of mental health, it is an obvious thing. Um, It's on our treatment plans and diagnostic assessments and it's everywhere. And we know it's important. But the reason I wanted to dig into it is not necessarily because of the clinical importance of community that we know, but because as people, um, especially in the U.S., that's what I'm familiar with, uh, but I feel like it's similar in other parts of the world also, um, community is diminished or not thought of as highly as maybe it should be. So that's kind of what we're going to be talking about today. And throughout the year, other podcasts will be talking about other pieces of community that are increasingly important. But until we get there, let's just kind of do a bird's eye view about what community really is about. And just to remind you, um, my pillars of practice are awareness is key, stories are significant, community changes lives, and curiosity before judgment. Those are the four. So this is the last one here. So I believe that community is the original welfare system. Uh, That's basically my elevator speech to promote community as a valued idea goal-oriented practice, and a permanent facet of a healthy life. So I believe that community changes lives and it often saves them. 
If you're a clinician, you know what I mean. If you're not a clinician, you know what I mean. This is my last pillar of practice, the the founding pillar of practice, because it helps me um, practice all of the other things. I have to practice awareness in community. I have to remember the significance of stories in community, and I have to be curious in community and restrain judgment. All of these things can only exist in community. Um, so community is an idea that's overused and overrun with messaging from every sector of industry. Um, so what I want to focus in on, what I'm talking about for the length of this podcast is community is simply a group of people who rely on each other. That's the definition we're going to go with. Um, we're keeping it broad. As we talk, we'll see that there are other ways to further define and engage and support communities we're part of. But this broad definition is good for my purpose, which is to show that every time you engage with someone, regardless of social distance, you have affected a member of a community, whether you want to claim that or not. Our actions reverberate through groups of people, not just one person. Um, when that's the scope of effect, we become more valuable and so do those around us. So we do not exist in a vacuum. It's easy to forget. So I'm here to remind myself and you as well. I saved the topic of community for the new year because it's something that's incredibly important. And so y'all, I will not be brief. So settle in. We're taking this one from the top. So let's start with loneliness. Loneliness is one of the greatest pains you can experience, and part of the reason I became a clinician is because I cannot stand to see a single person on this earth with its sea of people remain lonely and to feel hopeless and forgotten. In her book, Social Chemistry, Marissa King, um, the author, she's an organization organizational behavior professor at Yale, she recites some research about loneliness. Um, she says, according to John Cacciapo, who is a professor at the University of Chicago and an expert in the field of social neuroscience, up to 80% of youth and 40% of older adults experience loneliness. In addition to deteriorating physical health, loneliness can lead to depression, personality disorders, psychoses, even suicide. 60 million Americans, one out of five people are deeply affected because they're lonely. So I don't think any of us are shocked that people are lonely, but that number should strike you. This is not an old book. This is a very recent, within the last five years, written book. This is... Um, we're talking about a world where the internet exists, where social media exists, where every app to provide an avenue for community exists. So the number we would think with all the, um, the innovation in communication would decrease, would steadily decrease. And it's, it's very obvious that um, Technology and social media is not bridging this gap like you would you would assume. So if you're familiar with the roots of social psychology and attachment theory, there's a consistent belief that lack of regular engagement, so um, not being left alone in the first three years of life is incredibly important to normal global development of the infant. 
Um, we'll get deeper into that in a moment, but we're literally not created to be alone. This has been replicated over and over again. You can rest assured we are not created to be alone. For extremely uh, every extremely difficult moment or season of life for me this far has been directly related to my lack of access to my people. So raise your hand if you if you know what I'm saying. Lack of access to my close social network during difficult times has been extremely difficult. It makes it much more difficult. At times it was emotional or perceived or literal miles of road between me and my people, but it all resulted in a more painful experience in an already hard situation. I feel like all of us kind of know what that's like um, after the last couple of years. So in his book, Jeffrey Cohen, a professor and researcher at Stanford University, describes loneliness in this way. Let me grab. He says, feeling excluded is experienced experienced in much the way physical pain is, with both activating many of the same neural networks in the brain. Psychologists call it social pain, saying people are as motivated to alleviate it as they are to slake thirst and find shelter. He goes on to talk about how Maslow's hierarchy of needs would need to shift belonging to the bottom of the triangle to adequately accommodate what modern research has shown about the importance of belonging in a healthy life. So if you've ever seen that triangle, the bottom is shelter, food, all the things that you need for your physical body to flourish. So what they have found is belonging, which seems so amorphous, just um, something you cannot touch. It is as vital to your physical health as it is to your mental health. And I think that that's incredible. It's not just King and Cohen who've recognized this either. There are numerous replicable and generalizable studies that have witnessed this reality. You have noticed this reality. Loneliness sucks <laughs> to put to put a fine point on it. And being together, even in a terrible situation, feels better. Um, there are many situations that I can talk about where this is the reality for people. They'd rather be in a bad situation with someone familiar than in a good situation with no one. Um, I started with loneliness because it makes it much easier to value community and to define it when you can easily access your experience of its absence. So now you have that conjured up what loneliness is like in your life and maybe what it's like for someone else. I would also like to quickly address social media. I kind of touched on it, but quickly I'd like to talk about it because there is a podcast in the works talking about parasocial relationships and the way mental health is affected by them, but also because social media is one tool that can be used to support a, th a thriving community. It's not able to stand in for in-person intimacy, and we should not attempt to use it that way. In 2020, we broke the glass because it was an emergency and hunkered down with a solid internet connection to find others and stay connected. But this is not a long-term solution we should utilize. King sums up this dilemma quite eloqu eloquently on page 42 of Social Chemistry. When she says, 
The images we present on social media and the thinness of the media make it nearly impossible to transform repeated interactions into stronger ties. This means that it cannot be used to sustain relationships um, that we have made online. We need feet on the ground to mature and create sincere, fully intimate relationships out of relationships that have started online. And before you push back on me here, those relationships you've started on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, have they transcended the boundaries of the original app used to communicate? Has this relationship expanded into other phone calls, video chats, and brunch hangs that all take place in a different digital or physical space, thereby allowing both parties deeper access into the nuance of personality and daily life? Very likely so. So we will, we'll move on. That's another podcast you will um, hear this year on social media and relationship, because I do think it's becoming an imperative to truly talk about that in depth. Um, A simple way to go about understanding community and how it fits into your life is to start with the golden rule, which we should all know, do unto others as you would have have them do unto you. This is very often forgotten or just not easy in general. We're flawed humans and we go about flaunting those flaws to the blessing and detriment of others all day long. We'll talk about minimizing damage in community in a moment, but I'm going to first make things a bit more difficult. I propose for us to truly value community and how we contribute to or destroy it. We have to value the individual. Are we able to understand, even in the face of the worst humanity has to offer, that every person is indeed a person? In my early 20s, I went to the University of Texas, and at that time, and even now, Austin was very good at providing food options for every kind of diet. This seems random, but just stick with me. It was very lovely and made eating out with friends an absolute breeze. I remember having a very intense and on my end and unfortunately ignorant conversation about eating as a vegan. It was heated. So here we are in the land of barbecue done right. If not the best, okay, shout out to Truth Barbecue, uh, the true believers know. Uh, My friend refused to enjoy the fruits of living in such a place in time as this with awesome barbecue. Um, I argued with my whole heart with her. Just thinking about it just makes me shake my head. I was right. She was wrong or misinformed, whatever I thought at the moment. And as we argued, she became less of a person and more of a goal. Hindsight's twenty twenty, and that conversation was silly and, uh, and unhelpful. I'm owning it right now. Over dietary choices, I diminished her humanity. So instead of saying... I've never really looked into veganism. How do you like it? How has it blessed you? How has it helped you? I made her into a target for my misplaced frustration and othered her so that I could point out that smoked meat tastes great. (laughs) So um, not my proudest moment at all. My point is that we forget that humans all have dignity and free will to our detriment. Yes, our personal detriment because being in community is the very thing that can keep us healthy and regulated. Uh, Lisa Feldman Barrett, one of my favorite researchers and the author of How Emotions Are Made, reminds us that our partners and community helps us regulate our physiology. 
This means that holding someone's hand or just having them near you during times of stress can effectively reduce or eliminate that anxiety you may be having. You have for sure experienced this, but it's something that we all know in in a general way, even if we cannot talk about it specifically. Um, In every teen movie, I'm imagining Hilary Duff here. Um, In every teen movie, there's a moment where the teen is a star of the show. There'll be a contest or a talent show where they can test their mettle and show everyone that they have what it takes to be a star. There's always a moment of tension when the teenager looks around for their person that they can count on to support them. And that, you know, the dramatic music is playing and then boom, the audience is wowed by the performance of this very talented and rock solid teenager who had their people with them at a very important and fraught moment. In real life, it's not always that perfect, but it is very real. Um, In the very well-known book attached by Amir Levine and Rachel Heller, we are told it seems then that our partners powerfully affect our ability to thrive in the world. There is no way around that. Not only do they influence how we feel about ourselves, but also the degree to which we believe in ourselves and whether we will attempt to achieve our hopes and dreams. People can literally make or break your future in a lot of ways. I think it's extremely significant that we consider who our community is, what we do with our community, and what our community is for in our lives. Our community can regulate our bodily functions just by existing, y'all. Unfortunately, this means that they can cause negative experiences too that can make us hyper alert, constantly in survival mode, or just a general unease that we can't explain. Feeling safe and socially connected improves health, Cohen says. Learning this should encourage a moment of internal evaluation. And if it doesn't, I'm encouraging you to have a moment of internal evaluation. How are we regulating others? How are we regulated by others? Are there situations in which I notice a feeling of uncomfortability, like I don't belong? And what could that be about? These are all great journal questions. If that's your thing, I really hope that's your thing. If you don't know about journaling, y'all, let me know. I'll hook you up with the details because everybody should be journaling in some way. Uh, But I digress. Communities also provide experiential learning opportunities. Um, Just saying that I feel like a community college uh, commercial. But (laughs) um, it's true. Marissa King says the reality is that people learn and change who they are through experience. In fact, most early learning is experiential. Um, Paget was very uh, good about letting us know before uh, concrete operations, when we're pre-operational, sensory motor, that is experiential learning. Um, obviously, not all learning will be done in community, but the way we learn to so- socialize, um, solve problems, and pr- pronounce and conceptualize words usually require another person, right? When you don't know how to pronounce something, Um, Or I should say, I know when someone has often read a word, but has not heard it out loud because they will pronounce it differently than is common. And it's just very interesting to me when that occurs, because you know that that is something they picked up on their own and they they sounded out phonetically and they haven't heard it um, said in common English vernacular because English as a language can be kind of squirrely. So yeah, 
Um, one of my most favorite things about community is that it provides context. And y'all, I will preach on this forever and ever. You can get me to talk about this for a very, very long time. Have you ever seen the first um, Victorian Christmas cards? I am going to put the link down in the description box for this um, podcast. And please take a look at those images. They're the images printed on these cards ranged from a normative group of dining friends around a table to a frog in a tuxedo jacket dancing with a cockroach. When I first saw this, I thought it was just um, someone in the modern world making faux images and and it was a total prank. I did not believe it, so I had to look it up. Before reading the origin of these ideas for Christmas cards, I could not even fathom what a person would be trying to convey with the image of a frog dancing with a cockroach, especially during Christmas. I could not make the connection. Without the cultural context in those tight-knit communities back then that they would have created and diffused, I had no chance at divining the meaning from these photos at all. That is what we do in community. We find context for ourselves and the things we consume and produce, okay? Um, as that is why you'll see a lot of literary professors when they study. They are extrapolating from the historical time, the history that's available, the documents that showed what was going on at the time to under better understand what the author was trying to do and the text itself. So author and researcher Nicola Rihani talks about contextualization in her book, The Social Instinct, from the perspective of ethology. So let's do a little bit of comparative psychology here. When discussing insect colonies, let me grab that. Oh, sorry, guys. When discussing insect colonies, Rahani says, um, in particular, the design features and behaviors of the constituent insect parts can only be understood with reference to the higher level of organization, the colony. And she was specifically in, in that moment talking about ants. Um, so the what she is saying is the disparate parts make more sense when you look at the colony as a whole. We are better understood when our context comes with us. And that is a key element of effective clinical practice. If you have taken the CPCE or the NCE, and very likely um, the MFT exam or social work exam, you have had a question about contextualization, personalization. Um, we have to understand people in their context. I love watching people engage with a different group of friends than the one I met them in. This is where I see it the most. I get to see another facet of their personality that is honored in that particular group that I may have never seen otherwise. This is also why we watch people evolve through the lifetime of relationship. They encounter people who encourage or expose them to something and boom, life change and usually for the better. What's more, Tight-knit communities, uh, tight-knit families or friend groups almost have a different language that you can't understand without help. So like the inside jokes, the long-held nicknames with long backstories, wordless conversations, and even made-up words and traditions, they give us context that is rich and deep, and all of this becomes a beautiful part of our identity. To take this a step further, during your coursework at any level, you would have been given a concept to learn, but it never came alone. And this is in any level of coursework, even in high school, you would be taught who thought of this concept and when it was created and shared with others. Couldn't you have learned the foundation 
of social psychology without the knowledge of Kurt Lewin and his experience as a German Jew during World War II. I propose that knowing the names, knowing the people provides a context for this information that as humans, we find incredibly valuable for interpretation of the objective information. Antonio Damasio actually um, talks about this. He authored Descartes' error in which he wrote about the inability for humans to use knowledge objectively without all the other bits of input that emotional and cultural context provide. And I agree with him. Community gives us context. Erickson, Kohlberg, Vygotsky, and so many others who are founders of our practice built models of development and treatment based on how interpersonal relationships and social factors contribute to who and how we become. Community gives us so much more than we realize. And what is even more powerful is that when we engage that community, we have opportunities to give those beautiful benefits right back. Before we move into my final point, if you've enjoyed this episode so far, I encourage you to sign up for my Substack newsletter, for which the link can be found in the description box of this podcast. That's where you'll find more resources on this topic that I'm not able to link or reference here. It's also a great resource if you prefer to read a concise article about new mental health research books and the like. If you get on the internet for any amount of time, you'll see that community is broken even at the shallow level of digital communication. There was a massive shift in 2020 and cultural phenomena like cancel cancel culture, um, gatekeeping, and the way we viewed and engaged civil rights changed drastically. I do not think that the reason these things came to be was due to anything new. I think it was a lot of past and present feelings finally finding platforms that would amplify voices, especially without the um, ability to cathart these things um, in public forums with feet on the ground. We all occupy our own corners of the internet where our hobbies and eccentricities can roam free. Whenever I am on social media, I'm usually ensconced in my corner, which is Bookstagram. Not that often anymore, but that's always where I go when I'm there. Among the book recommendations and reviews, you will always find a bit of drama, as you probably will everywhere else on the internet. In the last few years, one of the major issues that has been going around is whether white authors should author or can author novels with POC characters. There would be books with African-American, Asian, or Muslim characters published with pseudonyms that received mediocre reviews by all audiences, only for these authors to be revealed as white people with no connection to the group they're writing about. This happened and is likely still happening frequently, so frequently that one of my favorite authors, R.F. Kuang, has made that the topic of her new novel, I just found out, called Yellowface. Um, I've loved everything she's written so far, uh, so I highly recommend you checking her out. When I took the time to think about how I felt about this, I realized as a biracial woman born in the United States with immigrant parents that I didn't necessarily care if someone of another race or ethnicity or culture tried to write about where I come from as long as I could trust them to do it. 
This is the main issue in our communities right now. We cannot trust each other to take care of our things. Whether that's our history, our present, our hearts, feelings, lives, we're not sure that if we're vulnerable and share and allow others into our worlds, that we will be cared for and protected the best way a broken, faulty human can. There's always room for grace and forgiveness, but in these times, those resources are less available than they used to be. They're eaten up by bitterness and resentment and hurt. And even when they are available, the gifts are not always honored and appreciated through a change in behavior or reparative action. And I've always thought that the worst part of experiencing racism or bigotry is not that someone is racist or bigoted, but that they harbor these beliefs and hide it so that I can't even protect myself. Of course, we prefer that the isms didn't exist, but this feels like a bit of an extra insult and trust is lost once again there. Cohen approaches the root of this when he says the crisis of belonging is aggravated by mistrust. The crisis of belonging is aggravated by mistrust. And so we can see why these numbers, in spite of all the technological advances in, um, you know, um, protecting and providing community, the numbers of loneliness are still so significant. Um, something else that Cohen writes about at length in his book, Belonging, is the found fundamental attribution error. I learned about this early in my master's program, and I think so many people probably did. I even wrote a paper on it, and that's why I remember. Uh, because we it came so early in my counselor education, I just assumed that it was one of those basic concepts everybody knew about. And I cannot remember if I read about it in a book or I happened upon it as I researched for the paper. But I just thought, okay, I'm like behind the curve. Everybody knows about this. I assumed that everyone knew uh, this concept maybe through some human psychology course that they had to take in undergrad. I don't know. Turns out that's not the case. This error seems to be an innate characteristic of human cognition and could be the basis for every poorly ex executed bout of logic that we undertake. Cohen defines the fundamental attribution error as um, an impulsive cognitive bias that leads us to see the behavior of others as emanating from underlying essence of the what the person who the person is rather than from the situation they're in he actually goes on to talk about how it is a collective mysticism that humans tend to use is seeing the essence of someone through one singular action that that can actually be determined um so it happens that we're constantly watching these singular instances of human behavior and determining the entirety of that person's morality, education, or even their family life based on a thimble of information that not even a clinician could use to understand a client. I regret not talking about this in my previous podcast on curiosity because it's not well known, but is very well used and only to our demise as communal people. The defining feature of our era seems, era seems to be that humans feel Few groups feel confident in their sense of belonging. Cohen talks about this on page one of his book about belonging, and it really broke my heart and made me want to more actively share and practice the things that support strong communities. So here are a few tips that can get us from here to healing. Um, of course, there are many more. Feel free to share, chat about it, share with me, share with others. Uh, first, value yourself as a person. 
I'm not talking about masking and Pilates and self-care rituals. Those are all wonderful things. But what I'm encouraging here is exploring your inner world through therapy and journaling. Tune into your hobbies, your faith, your passion, whatever informs your identity and how you behave in communal situations. Focus in on those things and pay attention to how they affect you and inevitably how they will affect others. Heal from your hurts. Understand that you deserve to have your dignity respected and your free will respected, even if it doesn't change your consequences. This is how you will begin to change how you treat others. The golden rule is meaningless if you treat yourself like trash instead of gold. Second, choose to be curious and humble so that you can seek understanding as a permanent posture of how you approach others. For more on this, listen to my uh, curiosity podcast or read my curiosity substack. Third and final, as always, remember that you do not exist in a vacuum. All behavior has consequences, and even if they come back to you, they reverberated through your community first. The damage we do is usually beyond what we can see or perceive, and that should make us take time to think before we act or speak. Let's normalize holding back until we understand, or not needing to speak or act on a thing if it's not for us to respond to. Those little moments where we see things we do not like, and I know that these moments will happen often, Let's choose to let that catalyze us to work alongside the community, our community members for change or to welcome or to find those who feel lost and lonely. This kind of wisdom and discernment is hard one, but fruitful. You will never know when you're saving a life just from being kind or intentional with your words and actions. Y'all together is a powerful word. As ever, I've done my research, but you should too. Check my sources against your own and always exercise sound judgment. If you enjoyed this episode, I invite you to subscribe because I would be glad to have you back for each new episode. I'm so glad you've joined me today and I would love to hear your thoughts. So reach out to me in the comments via the Remedy House website or find me on Instagram. We'll talk soon.